Okay, good evening everyone. So good to have you with us tonight. And uh, just want to have you turn, if you will, to the book of Revelation chapter 11. Now, excuse me, I know that none of us are really counting, but uh, this was, this is, I should say, the sixth study in chapter 11. So, but it's the last one in chapter 11. And next time we'll go to chapter 12, actually, because usually 12 comes right after 11. So that always helps. Tonight we want to close out this chapter because it, it is a significant chapter because we're still in kind of a parenthesis between the second woe and the third woe that were pronounced uh, back all the way back in chapter 8, getting into the, the trumpet judgments. Remember that we're looking ahead now. We're not looking at anything that has already happened. We're looking at something that hasn't, has yet to happen. But, but we can be sure that it's going to happen because we're dealing with the Word of God. We're dealing with the God who has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. I had an interesting conversation with a, a dear friend who's a, a pastor in another church. And, uh, and it's not to fault him or anything, but uh, he, like many others, really don't know what's going to happen. Well, none of us know exactly how things are going to happen, but we do know that certain things are going to happen. And we have the book of Revelation. We have all the prophets. You know, to let us know that something is going to happen. It all is centered around the nation of Israel. It's all about God dealing with His people as well as with all of His creation, especially those who are created in the image of God, who have been given every opportunity to come to know the truth about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the, the Anointed One, the Seed of the Woman, what we learned back almost four years ago when we were in the third chapter of the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. And these things are going to happen. And we can say there are a lot of ideas out there, and there are in the church, you know, as, as far as, well, some of these things have already happened, they say. What has happened is, is some of the near fulfillments have happened, and you cannot confuse the near fulfillments with the fact that most of them are actually far, far fulfillments yet to happen because God has not finished dealing with Israel. So with that in mind... We, we have to realize that we have to look at things from a futuristic point of view. A lot of tonight is about that reviewing. Reviewing what we've been through and, and, and how we need to continue to, to stand on this particular view of the Scriptures, especially the book of Revelation. So you notice in verse 14 of, of this chapter... After we have seen now the, the uh, introduction of the two witnesses and what they do uh, during the first three and a half years of the seven, year, of, uh, seven years of tribulation, all of a sudden we're, we're given this announcement, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now a woe, very simply, is a judgment or a period of judgment. And so the second woe is past, and the third is coming quickly. And then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now, if you are a musician and you've studied any uh, uh, church history, or I should say music history, you'll come to realize that George Frederick Handel 
actually took this particular verse of Scripture and inserted it into one of the many uh, oratorios, or I should say one of the many uh, songs that are used in that great work called the Messiah. And it is the phrase, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And we sang it a couple of Christmases ago. It's called the Hallelujah Chorus, taken from this verse. So this is a etern- this is an eternal truth, isn't it? This is an eternal truth. But we have to con- we have to look at it a little more closely to understand its implication for the future, and we will in just a moment. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. The twelve prophets, the twelve apostles, the twenty-four elders, as it were, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. This is not only a prayer, but it's a hymn. We give you thanks, O Lord, Lord, excuse me, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned the nations and notice that verse 18 is very long so I had to split it up into two slides the nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should be uh, that you should reward your servants the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name small and great and should destroy those who destroy the earth and then the temple of God was opened in heaven And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. So with the translation then of the two witnesses. And when I use the word translation, we're we're, we're meaning the transferring of. Just as as we've studied the rapture of the church being a transferring or a translating more like a translation of going from earth to heaven. And this is what happens to the two witnesses. They're dead in the streets for three and a half days, but on that, that uh, fourth day, as it were, they get up and then they're translated or they're raptured, as it were, or caught up in taken into heaven. So with the translation of the two witnesses from earth to heaven, the seventh trumpet then is about to sound. Now remember, we've been studying the trumpet judgments. We've already looked at the seal judgments. And then we've gone through the seven trumpet judgments. Now the seventh is about to blow. And when the seventh is blown, then of course, very shortly after that, the bowl judgments or the vile judgments will be uh, then brought upon the earth. But uh, the seventh trumpet is about to sound and it's going to usher in the last half of the tribulation period that is known as the great tribulation period. Now as we've talked about before, when we talk about the day of the Lord or the great tribulation or the tribulation as it were, the seven years or three and a half years, which is the great tribulation, the last half of the seven years, we need to understand that it is a time of judgment. It is a time of great sorrow. It is going to be a time of great sorrow for the nation of Israel, actually. It is going to be a time of great judgment upon the rest of the earth dwellers who have rejected the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ and the cross. So this is the vision that God is giving to John to give to the church. That in the last days, these things are going to be happening. And as a quick review of all of this, we turn to Jeremiah 30, verse 7, where in this particular prophecy it says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. The day of the Lord. Now remember, it's not a single day. It is a time period. But it is the great day, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. The time of Jacob's trouble. Who is Jacob? Israel. That's right. And, and, you know, we've been studying that on, on, uh, on Sunday mornings and Saturday night about Jacob having given, been given the name of Israel. And yet it's not used on him very often in his own person because, you know, he reverts back a lot to his, 
is being Jacob, just like sometimes we revert back to a lot of things that we do when we were, you know, before we came to the Lord. But uh, nonetheless, it is the time of Jacob's trouble because Jacob is Israel and all of Israel at this time has got to continue uh, or at least be uh, ministered to. And when I say minister, it's like God is really loving them and serving them, but he's judging them and he is chastising them. Because he has promised them this chastisement for 490 years. But there were seven years left that were taken up really apart from the 483 years. So there's those seven years left and this is the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, We can understand it clearer when we look at Daniel chapter 9, 27. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The he there is the Antichrist or the beast. Uh, And it says, but in the middle of the week, which is the middle of the tribulation period, after the first three and a half years, uh, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Uh, We don't have a lot of time to to speak on that, but it's just saying that It's going to be an abominable time because this Antichrist is going to defile the temple, as we're going to see in just a moment. Daniel chapter 12, uh, verse 1, actually. Again, it's split up in two here because it's such a long verse. It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, Michael, uh, the archangel, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. That is, he's the one who actually is the angel that uh, is over the uh, uh, nation of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble. Notice again, trouble. Such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. Now, let me just say very quickly that that... This part of the, the second part of that verse, such as never was since there was a nation. When, when people talk about the judgment already having come. In other words, that we're, we're, uh, we're not looking at this, we, we don't need to look at this futuristically, but it already happened. It happened back in 70 AD. This is what, what the preterist view is, those, those who, who say uh, it's already happened. In other words, it's not going to happen again. They don't see the importance of phrases like, such as never was since there was a nation. The kind of trouble is going to be magnified from what happened to Israel in A.D. 70. It's going to be magnified. And things have happened worse since. All I have to do is mention the Holocaust and you understand what I mean. And things are going to get worse than what happened at the Holocaust back there in the 40s, late 30s and early 40s. It's going to be worse. As we've already seen, as we've already read in the judgments that have been issued out or will be issued out, as it were. So this is, these, are, these are little indicators or indicators that we, have to re, that we have to take every word seriously about prophecy. And we cannot just say, well, you know, it already happened. Well, yeah, something happened, but God's not done with Israel yet. And that wasn't in the seven-year period of time. They try to fit it into it, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't. So... Uh, then there's, there's, then there's a statement that Jesus himself makes. In Matthew 24, verse 21, when he says, For then there will be great tribulation. There's the word great, along with tribulation. So, in essence, he's, he's speaking of the whole time, but in particular, the last half of that uh, seven-year period. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Another indicator that things are going to be much worse than has ever happened on the earth up to this point. And then Paul gets in the picture and he says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, For when they say peace and safety, have we not heard that before? And then when we think about the the Antichrist himself wanting to bring peace and safety, and the world is primed for this kind of activity and for this kind of, of, of statement, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. This is speaking of Israel. 
uh, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And we've talked about the prophetic language here, the use of labor pains, the fact that there is this desire for peace, and they're going to they're going to believe it from anybody who gives it to them. But then it's going to be the wrong person, and it says they shall not escape. Then in Second Thessalonians chapter two verse three, it says, "Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day." Notice that day again, speaking of the day of the Lord and the day of judgment, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits uh, as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So that is the activity that takes place at the, the middle of the tribulation period where all of a sudden the true colors of this man of peace come out and instead of bringing peace to Israel, he's given them three and a half years to have their sacrifices and offerings again and, and to be on the Temple Mount. And we talked about how that could possibly be when it, uh, and, and still have the, the, uh, the, the Islamic temples where they are, or the Islamic, uh, uh, well, yeah, temple and, and uh, mosque there. Uh, they can still do this because somebody's bringing peace to them. Yet, in the middle of that period, he goes into the temple, or the Holy of Holies as it were, and he, de- he desecrates it, defiles it, just as Antiochus Epiphanes did so back about 200 B.C. So again, prophecy is fulfilling itself in these things. So now, verse 14 of our text, going back to verse 14, it marks the end of the parenthetical portion of that vision that was given to John between the 6th and the 7th trumpets, which is chapters 10 through verse 14 of this chapter. But we've been waiting for the third woe now to finally arrive since the second woe was given back in chapter 8, which is actually all the woes were given in, in chapter 8, verse 13, where it says, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. Notice three woes. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, just as a reminder, the first woe, whoops, I don't want to get too, too ahead of ourselves. The first woe came after the fifth trumpet, after it was sounded. And as our text declares in verse 14, that second woe is now past. By the way, that was that 200 million man army that... Uh, took out a large portion of, of, of people on the earth. That was the second woe. The third is coming quickly, we're told. And as the trumpet sounds, the seven final plagues are going to be brought on. And in those seven plagues, the bowl judgments. In other words, it's like a bowl that is poured out. And inside this bowl are seven, or actually there are seven bowls with seven plagues. That's the idea here. So when the seven final plagues are brought on, we are told this. It is in Revelation 15, just jumping ahead a little bit. But in Revelation 15, verse 1, it says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So now we're coming to that place where the wrath and the judgment of God is going to be completed fulfilled and accomplished with these particular judgments. Now this, of course, is telling us that the next three chapters of Revelation, the next three chapters of Revelation are focused on the third woe on earth. The next three chapters are focused on the third woe. But the sounding of the seventh trumpet is also going to lead us up to and through the setting up of the millennial kingdom of God, where Jesus Christ will rule this world as king. So where we can say, well, here we go, we're going to have to see all this judgment again, yes. But there's a purpose at the end of all of this, at the, at the conclusion, at the accomplishment, at the fulfillment of, and at the completion of this judgment There will be a kingdom set up and Jesus 
will sit on the throne of that kingdom and he will reign in Jerusalem on the throne of David forever and ever. Now, there is a time frame there too. And I say forever and ever. He's going to be, what I mean is he's going to be king forever and ever. And he, we, you know, we can call him king already because he is king and he will rule forever and ever. Now, in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, it gives us some insight as well into this section of Revelation, the section that we're studying tonight. Because it says in verse 7 of Revelation 10, but in the, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. So the, the wrath of God will be completed and the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Now, what is important about this is that I had mentioned back in chapter 10 that the mystery being revealed here was the kingdom of God on earth. So if you're taking notes, the mystery to be revealed is the kingdom of God on earth. In fact, it is good to remember that during, during Jesus' first coming, during Jesus' first coming, the kingdom of God was internal and it was spiritual. Remember that Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. But it was internal. And it was spiritual. Because the Lord was going to rule from the thrones of our hearts. But the blowing of the seventh trumpet will lead to a kingdom that is external and physical. A kingdom that can be seen. A kingdom that is, for all intents and purposes, going to be experienced. As Jesus will rule, and as Jesus will reign from the throne of David, as I said, in Jerusalem. Now, it will be a literal kingdom, in other words. This is not some kind of metaphoric kingdom. Keeping the reign and rule only in the heart. No. I've mentioned this before. Why would God want to deal with Israel and say as often as he does in Scripture that Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, the city on that hill, why is Israel and Jerusalem mentioned thousands of times in the Scripture? If it's only metaphoric. Jesus did not look at a metaphoric city of Jerusalem and weep. He knew what was going to happen to that city because of their rebellion and their missing their Messiah. He came unto his own, John writes in the gospel, but his own did not receive him. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. Now understand, this was not so much out of ignorance. Because he came, and he fulfilled prophecy. And they saw him, and they heard him, and they some even touched him, and were touched by him. And they missed him still. So... The kingdom that he spoke of, first and foremost, begins in the believer's heart. But it concludes, as God is bringing to summation now all things, it concludes in a literal kingdom where Jesus will reign for a thousand years in the city of Jerusalem, on the throne of David, because that is what is prophesied. So it will be a literal kingdom set up on earth, but to the unbelievers, to those who do not believe, to those who reject the message of the gospel, who reject the person of Christ, the sounding of the seventh trumpet will be judgment. And it will bring about the third woe. Let's go to verse 15 of our text. 
It says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, and saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now, this is rejoicing. There, there is joy here. Because an official proclamation is being made of the coming coronation of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus the Messiah of Israel. That is why there is this proclamation. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. There is no doubt from the Hebrew Scriptures as well as from the New Testament passages uh, that, that, that re, uh, refer to this that Jesus Christ is to be the King to sit on the throne of David. There's no doubt that Jesus is the King. He is certainly... He is certainly to be the king to sit on that throne. He is certainly the king of Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2, where there's mention of king there. He is the king. And he's also very clearly the king of Psalm 24. But I want you to see Psalm 24, if you will, where we are told this in verses 7 through 10. Psalm 24 verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be, you, uh, and be ye lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the question is, who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now who do we know that's coming? Jesus. Who do we know, who do we know that is going to come not any longer coming to bring salvation. I mean, because He's already come the first time to do that. He did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through it might be saved. That's the first coming. But the second coming, He is coming to settle all accounts. And as we will see later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to see a robe that is white, and yet... There's blood on that robe. He's coming to battle. We're going to deal with this later on. See, so we have to understand the characteristic of the Christ, Jesus, in His second coming. So, He's the Lord, mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then it says, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, you everlasting doors. And the King of Glory shall come in. Who is this King of Glory? You've got to remember this is a song, so it sounds like a song. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of Glory. So this is indeed then a description of Jesus as King. His kingdom now is described in many Old Testament passages, especially in the book of Daniel. And there's a number of passages in Daniel. It would take us a long time to go through all of them. But the prophecy given at the birth of Christ, I think, encapsulates them all in this manner. So turn it, if you will, to Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. It's the Christmas story, as it were. And see, a lot of times we get all, we get all messed up because, you know, we're all, con- we're all concerned about holly and, you know, yule logs and... Santa Claus and all this kind of stuff about Christmas. When this is what Christmas is all about, look. Behold, you will conceive. This is the angel speaking to Mary. Gabriel speaking to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Yeshua. Yeshua. It is the name that means God is salvation. That is his name, Jesus, Yeshua. He will be great, notice, and will be called the Son of the Highest, 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's all we need to see and all we need to know that this king is Jesus himself. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Yaakov, Jacob, forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Wonderful, isn't it? So, we're, we're in the part of the chapter that is kind of, you know, it's saying, you know, it's the dawn before the, or, or the, actually the dusk before the, the darkness, because we're going to see a lot of darkness after this again. And I'm thankful that the Lord, throughout the book of Revelation, as we're studying it, and the pace that we are studying it, is giving us times to recognize that there is rejoicing in heaven still. Now, there's something about Jesus being the king that goes back to the early part of his ministry. It goes back to when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness when he was there 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and praying in preparation for his earthly ministry. And you remember that Satan came to him the first time and he was hungry, right? Because it tells us that he was hungry and he said, you know, why don't you take a stone and turn it into bread? You can do that if you're the son of God. And of course, Jesus responded to him. The word says, or, you know, the word of God says, man should not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The second temptation that we're given by the, by the uh, gospel writers is this one. And, and, and Luke is uh, staying in the book of Luke, by the way. If you go to chapter 4, it says, And the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Isn't that interesting? That Satan, the enemy, the devil, takes Jesus to a high mountain. And shows them the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Does he have that kind of power? Well, let me, let me just say that I think he thinks he has that kind of power. But he forgets who he's with. And who's really in control of things. So, in a moment of time, he sees all of these kingdoms. And in verse 6 it says, And the devil said to him, All this authority, power, alright? Power. All this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. All will be yours. (laughs) And I love Jesus' response. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now, why do I bring this up? Satan was given dominion. Is he not called the prince of this world in the scriptures? But God knows what he's doing. See, we we can't forget that. God's in charge. God's in control. He knows what he's doing. I I want you to, to go back, if you will, and remember the Tower of Babel. You all remember the Tower of Babel? That was man almost immediately falling away from God after the flood after God had already judged the world of course there were you know uh, Noah's sons had to go scatter all throughout the world and and all these people are you know now being born years later and of course they had that long long life you know to be able to do that but but now these these people are are wanting to build their own you know, way to God, as it were, their way, actually not to God, but to heaven, as it were, their own way of saying, we're going to rise above everything. And I want you to remember how the Lord scattered those who built Babel. Remember how he scattered them? 
The Lord came down. As a matter of fact, the tripartite God, you know, the, 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 the Trinity, you know, as it were, they, they, they actually spoke among themselves and they came down. And they confused the languages of the people. The people couldn't understand each other anymore. And he took the unity that he wanted the men to have. In other words, he, he wanted man to have this unity to worship the God that created them. And he took this unity of worshiping the Lord with one voice and with heart. And in effect, he made them of many nations and peoples due to their rebelliousness. There are nations and peoples and, and tribes and tongues all over the world, all because man rebelled against God. That was not God's plan. That was not God's plan. So I say that because now Satan is offering him these kingdoms. Satan is offering Jesus these kingdoms with power and with glory. And the Lord spurns the offer. And I'll tell you why Jesus spurned the offer given to him by Satan. Not just because Jesus said, you know, God is alone to be worshipped. That, that's true. But he spurned this offer because Jesus did not come for the divided, disunited kingdoms of the earth. He had come for the singular kingdom. So when you look at verse 15... The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Some translations only say kingdom. Because in effect, the word in the Greek is singular. Jesus came for a singular kingdom. Now it will be made up of all nations, tribes and tongues and peoples. But now we become one in Christ. And again... What is the church to be? The church is to be one voice, with one heart, giving praise, honor, and glory, and worship to one Lord and one Christ. And this is the theme of heaven's song. This is the theme of the song, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms, or have become, have become. Notice it says, have become. I'll talk about that in a moment. But it is the theme of heaven's song. It is the theme of heaven's hymn to God. But what is wonderful news in heaven, and that's why I say in heaven it's, there's rejoicing. What is wonderful news in heaven is woeful news on the earth. It is woeful news on the earth. I want you to look at Revelation 11 verses 16 through 18. The next portion of our, of our text, it says, And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and they worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. In other words, no matter what was given to Satan, you have taken your power. It's your power and you are the one who has been reigning and ruling all along. You're the one that's always been in control. So now in verse 18 it says the nations were angry. Do you, do you see that word? The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, by the way, that's not talking about the fact that we need to be green. You ever heard that? You know, there is even churches today that are going around saying, look, we need to be green because we don't want to be the ones destroying the earth. You know who's destroying the earth? Isn't it people, you know, that, that may not get, uh, you know, the, the, the right... Uh, trash into the recycle bin. They're not destroying the earth. The ones who are destroying the earth are the ones who are rejecting wholeheartedly and wholesale the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are destroying the earth because they're destroying everything that God had originally intended to be what? 
good. That's how he created everything, good. Man is destroying that. So, no sooner do the voices in heaven announce the coming kingdom that the elders fall on their faces to worship God and they give thanks that the Almighty has at last assumed His sovereign right in the earth. Now, in the ancient Greek grammar, the verb tense of have become, now that's just taking us back to verse 15, but the, the, that phrase have become, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, that little phrase have become indicates an absolute certainty about Jesus coming and reign uh, even before the fact is accomplished. Even before it is accomplished, He's already the one who has conquered. Though things chronologically haven't all yet fallen into place. That's the point. And here's an example that we can relate to. At the headquarters of a a successful political campaign on election night, there is joy even though it will be a while until that candidate is actually installed into office. The joy anticipates a certain result. The joy anticipates a certain result. Jesus is already king, but he is going to come and he's going to be crown the king, he's going to take his seat on the throne, but he's already king. Y'all understand that, right? Okay, so there's an event so, so certain, it is an event so certain that it is spoken of as it has already, as if it has already taken place, and something like that, an event like that is called proleptic. Proleptic. I'm giving you, a, I mean, this is a 75 cent word, folks. You don't have to write it down if you don't want But this is what it is. It's a proleptic. And a proleptic simply means answering in advance. Or an answer in advance. Or something that is, you know, we can say is a certainty that is going to happen. Yet it hasn't happened yet. So we know that Jesus is king. Though he is going to come and he's going to be proclaimed as king. He's already king. Y'all understand that? So a person who wins a, 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 an election, let's say the mayor wins an election, he doesn't become mayor that very moment, but he's already mayor. He's been declared that by vote. So a few weeks later, when they finally have the, you know, the induction or whatever they call it, installation of, all, of, of, of the, then that's when. But he's already done it before. So that's the proleptic. So we, 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 call, we could all benefit by being a little more proleptic, okay? Y'all, you know, y'all understand what I mean? We can all benefit from being proleptic. You guys are saying, no, no, I don't mean proleptic like weird, you know. What, what I mean by this is, in the middle, listen carefully, in the middle of your personal trials, in the middle of your personal tribulations, looking ahead to what is already true of you in Christ, that's inspiring. You're looking at me like, what is he talking about? You want to know what I mean? Look at this. Ephesians 1 verse 3. You know what it says? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know that you've been blessed already? And you're saying, I haven't seen it yet. You know that the implication of this particular chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, is telling us that we sit already in heavenly places with Christ. But are you sitting in in heavenly places right now? No, you're sitting in Calvary Chapel. But spiritually, you're sitting in heavenly places if you love Jesus Christ. That's being proleptic. Got it? You got the understanding. Knowing God, knowing God will complete His good work in you. Listen carefully. Knowing God will complete His good work in you and that you will be glorified and live with the Lord forever in heaven gives you the perspective that you need to press on toward the finish. It just is an encouragement. If God has blessed me, then I want to do those things that will bless Him. I will honor him. 
So my encouragement tonight is be proleptic. And please understand what that means, okay? Don't go around saying that I told you to be something else. Okay, all right. (laughs) What I mean is anticipate heaven. Anticipate heaven and you will experience it in your heart and in your home. So the hour is coming when God shall resume His power and the words of the angel to Mary, the words of the angel to Mary will be fulfilled. Now, again, God has always been in control. God has always been in authority. You see, so the testings of people dealing with the wickedness of man because of the wickedness of Satan. When you think of the grand design, you realize God has just wanted us to draw near and near to Him. And draw near to His heart and draw near to His power, draw near to His might, draw near to His goodness, draw near to His mercy, draw near to His protection and and His grace and everything that God is about. But we have a world today where people have gone away from God and actually embraced the wickedness. But the words of the angel to Mary will be fulfilled. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And He shall reign on the throne of David forever and ever. In verse 18, the prayer of the elders reminds us that the Lord is a God of justice. And righteousness. And because of this, we're not to be deceived into thinking that the Lord will no longer execute wrath and vengeance simply because it has been postponed for so long a time. You know, there are people today that don't, they don't believe that God is a God of, of wrath. Because they do not understand and grasp the fact that God is a God of justice. We only want to call Him a God of mercy. Well, He is a God of mercy, isn't He? As a matter of fact, we wouldn't be sitting here if He wasn't a God of mercy. But He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of justice. He is a just and true God. He's a God of truth. He's a God of holiness. All of these things. But what we as Christians experience great greater than anything else when we come to know Jesus is that He is a God of love. Yes. And He loved us so much. We know this verse, right? John 3.16. He loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. That little word perish there, we tend to kind of gloss over because we love the fact that He loves us so much that He's going to save us. But He's got to save us from something. Perishing. And the perishing is a reality if we do not receive Jesus Christ. If we do not believe in, in, in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, in dying for the sins of men, and then rising again on the third day to secure for us eternal life, That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But today now God is, you know, oh God, you know, even Christians ask the question, how, how can God be so? How can God allow this? How can God? They never ask the right questions. They don't ask about what you know. What are you? Why was man such an idiot? And listening to that serpent, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's the reality. So now, let's deal with the facts. Let's deal with the truth. The the prophetic voice of God has gone forth. 
because it is saying to you, if you will believe that I have already shown you the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, at least a little picture of it by the prophecies that have been fulfilled from Genesis to Revelation and are being fulfilled even now, still in the book of Revelation and will be fulfilled when the time comes. Listen, if that is the case, then you need to believe in me and you need to believe that I sent my only begotten son so that you can be saved for eternity because there is coming judgment. There is a coming judgment. There is a time coming when those who have rejected the truth of the gospel will have to be judged. You see, God the Father gave the sovereignty of the earth to His Son. And though men will not acknowledge Him now, the time will come when they will be forced to do so. The world kingdom that has been in Satan's hand must come to an end. It must come to an end. Listen to Psalm 98 verse 9. For he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Very simply, in judging the peoples with equity, you know what it just means? Nobody is going to hell unjustly. And no one gets into heaven because they deserve it. That's mercy. Or, maybe I could put it better in this picture. No one's going to be kicking and screaming to stay out of heaven. No, not heaven, no. He will judge with righteousness and with equity. There will be no inequities in the judgment of of God and of Christ. On the other hand, the world is angry because Christ comes to rule. They're angry because of that. And as we can tell today throughout the world that that it wants anything but the reign of God and of Christ. Look at our own country today. A country that was founded on the scriptures. A country that was really at one time a Christian nation. Today we can't see that. It no longer is a Christian nation. Thanks, you know, in part to uh, the president who even said that at the beginning of his administration a few years ago. What a telling thing that was. Now, to be a Christian, you know, if if you want to be a good kind of Christian to this world, well, you have to compromise everything that you believe. And you can't step on anybody's toes. And Jesus said, hey. Truth is what matters. Truth is what matters. We try to stand on truth and everybody throws rocks at us. Look at the Christians that are being killed on purpose in Egypt during this revolt. Christians being killed in Syria. Christians being killed in Iran. And many in Africa. Africa is the worst place. One of the worst places. Type in the voice of the martyrs in your, in your Google searches. Or persecution.org or .com, one of those. Persecution.org. That's the voice of the martyrs. Read some of those stories. It's going on today. The world is angry. And you know it's angry, even though much of the world doesn't even want to believe in Jesus, they're angry because Jesus is coming. Do you know that that's what it tells us even in the Scriptures? All of these non-believers, all of these atheists, are going to be waving their fists at God. Well, I thought you didn't believe in Him. They're going to do that. You know, it's been said before, even by the religionists of Jesus' time, uh, in a a parable actually, but nonetheless, this parable was true. This is why Jesus told it. Uh, At the very end, he says, we will not have this man to reign over us. He said it on purpose as a parable because that was the reality. 
We will not have this man to reign over us. It's talking about Jesus. It's been said that the religions, or I should say it's been said that religions can be tolerated under certain circumstances, but surrender to God is intolerable to the nations of the world. Religions can be tolerated under certain circumstances, but surrender to God is intolerable to the nations of the world. Surrender to Christ is intolerable to the nations of the world. The world will soon find out that the wrath of men is impotent, but the wrath of God is omnipotent. You understand what I said? The wrath of man is impotent, powerless. But the wrath of God is all-powerful. And that's what we're having to deal with here in the book of Revelation. Now give me just a few minutes here to, to begin to close. Almost. <laughs> but turn, if you will, to Second Thessalonians again, chapter 1. And listen to the words, if you will, of Paul. Of this particular time frame. But speaking to the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and, give, and, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now you have to understand that he's also speaking about the tribulation and the persecution that the early church was, was receiving at that time too. But then he says, and he, and he uses terms that we realize are terms that apply to the end. He says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the, power, the glory of his power. When he comes in that day, notice, in that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. True and full justice, in other words. True and full justice will finally be meted out when Christ returns. And all who will receive their just, all will receive their just desserts. But it's not going to taste really good. The just desserts that they're going to get won't be sweet. The losers will rage in vain, for they will have had their opportunity to join the heavenly throng. The winners will have had their struggles and trials in this life. Persecution, trials, tribulations, and all of that. But the rewards will be great to the small and to the great who believe and build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. There is that time coming when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, and, and we're told about that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 17, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that you have laid that foundation in your life, Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, now notice the foundation being Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, notice that three of them are, 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 are good things, and the other three are just kind of neutral things, like wood, hay, and straw. Now, what's important about this is the next phrase. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. So you put fire to gold, silver, and precious stones, uh, they're, they're going to last. Actually, they're going to get more purified. But what happens to, fire, what happens to wood, hay, and stubble when, when you put fire to it? It gets, turns into ashes. It says, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Now, but notice this. He, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. But then he says this. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that? Well, it's good to know. You need to know that. Okay? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So, may the Lord help us to be faithful in these things until Christ 
comes for his church. Now let's close with verse 19 of our text because we're, we're just a few minutes away from closing. It says, And the temple of God, and I mentioned the temple of God from that statement that Paul made to lead us into this. Then the temple of God was open in heaven because this is a, a real temple and it's open in heaven. Have you noticed in the book of Revelation how many things are open from the very beginning? Books are open and gates are open and all kinds of things are open. Even the abyss was open and this is open and a lot of things are being open. You know, that's the importance of the book of Revelation. Things are being opened so that we can understand. So the temple of God was open in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, folks. It's not in Washington. I mean, have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Come on. Come on. Who's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Be honest. Okay. I know the rest of you have too. The last, the last scene, I mean, the last scene of that movie, what, what do we see them doing? This old guy's carrying, pushing this box down, you know, into this big, huge warehouse where it gets kind of lost in there, you know? That's, that's it, it, wow, it's in Washington. No, 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 no. It's in heaven. The temple of God was open in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. It's there. Now, see, God is the only one that can do that because he's better than Hollywood. And there, and, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake and a great hail. And, and that's kind of where we're going to start uh, next week. But this chapter opened. Listen, the chapter opened with a view of temple of a temple on earth. The temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem. Remember that? The beginning of this chapter. It closes with a view of the temple in heaven. And the focus of attention is the Ark of God's Covenant. Because the Ark of God's Covenant is the very symbol of God's presence among His people. And this very picture is given to us to signify that God is about to act on behalf of His beleaguered, harassed, and abused Israel. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the Ark, the Ark of God was connected with the tabernacle of Moses, and Moses, it was, connecting, it was connected with the land and with Joshua. It was connected with the kingdom and with David. It was connected with temp, the temple and Solomon. Those four things. It was connected again with the tabernacle and Moses, the land and Joshua, the kingdom and David, the temple and Solomon. Now, it consequently stood connected then with those four things this way. The Ark of God was connected to, the, to Israel's law. It was connected to Israel's land. You with me so far? The Ark of God, Joshua had the Ark, you know, when they crossed over into the Promised Land. They carried that Ark very, you know, very respectfully, you know. The law was Moses. Moses received the law in Sinai. But the law could only take him so far. Because grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. And then the Ark of God is connected with Israel's Lord, King David, the kingdom. He said, not the king, not, not the temple, but the kingdom of Israel and David. That is Israel's Lord. Because Jesus is the Lord who sits on the throne of David. And then lastly, because of the temple and Solomon, and Solomon built this beautiful temple, and there in the temple of Solomon stood that wonderful menorah, a lot bigger than that one. But it was the light of the glory of God for the people in that temple. So the praise of the 24 elders is directly linked to the opening of the heavenly temple and the subsequent rumblings of judgment are heard on the earth. The earthquakes and all of that, the lightnings and the thunderings. Well, their, their occupation, and I'm speaking of the elders here to close, the occupation with the word of God, the ways of God, and the will of God is linked with the forward march of the divine purpose. The purposes of God are moving forward. What a lesson for us as we wait for the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to close with this. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. It says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Now this is a, an act of worship. Which, what it means is you kiss toward the sun. Which means you worship Jesus. 
And God says, I, I, I don't let anyone, I, I, I don't share my glory with anyone. But the Son is to be given the worship. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. So if you haven't put your trust in the Lord, now's a good time to do it. Now would be a wonderful time to put your trust in the Lord. Because we are still to this day living in what is called the age of grace and the Word of God and the love of God and the mercies of God are still available for all. But a time is coming when they will not be available. And then we hear those words, the summer has ended and you are not saved. The harvest is past, the summer is ended and you're not saved. But you can still be saved today. And Jesus is still here, but he is king and he is coming again. Shall we pray?